When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Something else. Carol Bergoli was a secretary at the Muir Group. She worked directly with a lot of higher-ups, including Maxwell. Occasionally, she'd even fly with Maxwell in his helicopter. One time, she was talking to a friend about it. He said to me, whatever you do, he said, don't get in that helicopter. I said, why? He said, wherever that helicopter takes off, he said, there's a hundred pair of eyes wishing it to crash. So I said to him, well, tell them not to look up because the last thing he does before he gets in that helicopter is pee off the roof, and that's a fact. Carol's friend wasn't particularly shocked. He laughed and he said, oh, that's right. He said, that's, that's all he's ever done is you know, pissed on our heads. Maxwell could do whatever he wanted. He could toss his leftover food on the floor, use towels instead of toilet paper, and literally piss on people's heads before he went from one country to another. But Maxwell wasn't satisfied with just pissing off and pissing on the British public. Over and over, when Maxwell tried to climb the ladder and buy something with more influence and more prestige, he was rejected. Time and time again, the companies with stature would choose someone with a better reputation, and not infrequently, they choose Maxwell's nemesis, Rupert Murdoch. Famously, he was beaten three times at the finishing line by arch-rival Rupert Murdoch. He eventually was able to buy the Daily Mirror, but that didn't compare to Rupert Murdoch's papers, and it certainly didn't come close to Murdoch's empire. Murdoch had owned papers in the U.S. since the 70s. In the early 80s, he bought his first stake of 20th Century Fox. Maxwell was a mogul, He had businesses and influence all over the world. But compared to someone like Murdoch, he was in the minor leagues. Maxwell looked for salvation in America. America, New York City, was Robert Maxwell's chance to achieve his fantasy. And he put everything on the line. But could he pull it off? They told me there's nothing there. It's, It's all like the guy who makes cotton candy, you know, at the carnivals. It's nothing. They whip it up into something. He he was on a string and a prayer. I'm Tara Palmieri. This is Power, the Maxwells. Episode 5, Top Dollar. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Imagine a mirror board meeting. Maxwell with his huge desk filled with phone consoles, a big leather chair, his employees seated in rows, all facing the man in charge. It's 1988, so probably a lot of wide ties, big shoulder pads, a lot of cologne, and a lot of men. Now imagine you're a woman reporting on Maxwell for Time Magazine. Imagine being Martha Smilgus. He had a meeting and he had all his mere executives there and he was running the meeting and it was a big show and I kind of snuck in the back I came in and I had been introduced to him at the start of the meeting and um, I'm attractive and he did say one thing he said he introduced me to the whole group and he said now she looks like a bimbo but watch out for her not the best first impression but Maxwell was living up to his reputation I just thought oh boy so this guy is a ruffian, you know, there's a ruffian side to him. But he was fulfilling what I kind of thought he was. Tabloid people are tabloid people. It's in their blood. You know, rough around the edges, maybe a little crass. I know these people. I worked for five years at the New York Post, rival to the Daily News. And Maxwell might have been a tabloid person, the type of guy who'd call a reporter a bimbo. But he had become someone you had to take seriously. He made a huge purchase in the States. Big enough that Smilgus, an editor of Time magazine, would want to spend a week with him. He wants to take over America. He's chasing Rupert Murdoch. And they want to do a big profile on this guy. He's worth it. Why was Maxwell worth it? Well, in 1988, Maxwell was bidding for one of the world's largest and oldest publishing companies, Macmillan Press. It was an old-fashioned publishing house, Blue Shoe Publishing House. Here's how Maxwell's head of corporate communications, David Adler, Describe Macmillan. Macmillan was the epitome of a, an old school company. We had pastry trays going around to all the executives every day, twice a day. They would bring breakfast and they would bring afternoon snacks and tea, formal dining rooms. There was intense competition to buy it. And if history was anything to go by, Maxwell's chances were slim. But Maxwell was determined. Macmillan was... Um, sort of sacrilegious to sell these these big publishing houses to someone who would be at all squeezy. Because he was seen as, you know, a rogue, uh, an outsider. He raised money from over 44 banks. It came down to a bidding war between Maxwell and one other company. The price went higher and higher. The bid was raised to 600 million more than Macmillan was worth. Some of the sellers at Macmillan even wanted to take a lower bid than sell to Maxwell. But when the news broke... There would be like all these war rooms that were going on. And all of a sudden, it was announced after the bid went in that Maxwell got it. He had bought Macmillan Press for $2.7 billion. That's a lot of money. It was actually $2.6 billion. But what's an extra $100 million? Either way, it was a huge gamble. So, Maxwell was in the States. He was in New York City. He put his chips in and placed his bet. 
And now he had an expensive prestige business. And as a result, he was getting the kind of press he always wanted. He just had me follow him around and he loved it. He loved the attention. He just loved it. So what did Smilgis see when she followed Maxwell around? He just took the grapes and the stems and ate the stems, one mouthful after another. And I was like, oh my God. Of course, his eating habits didn't change. But you might think that Maxwell would be laser-focused on his nearly $3 billion purchase. But during that week together, Maxwell lived the life he had always lived, jumping from one thing to another, one country to another. At one point, they took Maxwell's private jet to Paris. Maxwell had schemes and plans, but it didn't seem to have anything to do with business. Normally, Robert had a limo or the Rolls Royce, beautiful car. And this car goes up and it's kind of like a a whitish car with some blue on it. And so we get in and as we pull up, Robert pulls from the floor and he actually had a fake police light that he stuck to the top of the car with his big arm. He just reached out, kind of stood up, stuck it on the roof. I have never seen anything quite like that. Smilgis had a memorable week and she got an interesting profile for time. But she didn't leave thinking Maxwell was a good fit for McMillan. Robert wanted to make this big New York thing. He wanted the United States entry entry into the U.S. market. McMillan was just an odd way to do it. Maxwell seemed more concerned with winning McMillan than running it. Adler said Maxwell was basically absentee. He once was, and I'm quoting Adler from a book on Maxwell, blistering mad that employees were ordering extra pastries to take home. But besides that, he wasn't too interested even though, according to Maxwell, the purchase was for more than half of his worth. So if it wasn't about increasing his fortune, then what was it all about? Here's Adler again. Maxwell's desire to get to be an establishment figure in New York City. And the way he wanted to be an establishment figure is to connect with all these people. It was also the bold-faced names that the press liked to write about. And if you're thinking of one larger-than-life New Yorker in the 80s, you're correct. Robert Maxwell and the 45th president of the United States got to know each other. So he and Donald Trump would have all of these um, conversations on their boats. Their conversations were on brand for both of them. Picture them standing on the Lady Ghislaine. No one was allowed to wear shoes on the yacht, so they're in their socks. Trump, younger, with more hair and trimmer. Maxwell looking more like Trump now. The two discussing, you know, who had the bigger yacht. That was kind of the the wink, wink the whole time of, you know, what he was trying to show. (laughs) He had a bigger boat. I don't know technically if it was bigger or not, but I'm sure he wanted to have a bigger boat than Donald Trump. Apart from measuring the size of their boats, these parties would lead to attempts at business deals. And so we ended up pitching the idea of of doing uh, Trump magazine. And we actually created an entire magazine. Maxwell had a printing company and printed it. And uh, we made blow-ups of the cover. We went into Trump's office and we had to unveil it with this silk black covering. And we pulled down the black covering. Beneath the curtain was a cover of a guy in a black tie with the logo reading Trump's. And Trump actually talks like a third person. Trump said something like, Trump really likes this or something. While Trump mag didn't come through, McMillan was an effective tool to wine and dine with a new set of people. It seemed to be doing just what Maxwell wanted. His status had risen. 
he seemed wealthy and powerful. He seemed like a good person to do business with. I mean, endless champagne bottles on a yacht and romps through Paris. Doesn't it all just scream success? But there were rumors circulating, rumors that were closer to the truth than the image Maxwell created. After the break, it's time to pay up. Robert was in debt. I mean, he had big debt. The 80s had been a boom time, a time of Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and trickle-down economics, or like they say in the movies. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed works. And Maxwell really embraced that spirit. But towards the end of the 80s, that greed had consequences. Today is Black Monday, the day the Dow dropped more than 500 points. On October 19, 1987, the global economy took a huge hit. The biggest one-day drop in Britain's history. Maxwell bought Macmillan in 1988, less than a year after the downturn. But after such a boom time, it was easy to convince yourself that soon the market would bounce back. But by 1990, two years after the purchase, times were still tough. Maxwell had placed a huge bet on Macmillan at the worst time. He'd paid too much, and Macmillan wasn't producing the kind of return he needed. That, along with his decades of overspending, had caught up with him. By the spring of 91, he was in serious trouble and forced to do something he never wanted to do. He didn't want to sell anything because that would be an admission of failure. But he didn't have a choice. He was in too much debt and didn't have enough money coming in. He had to sell pieces of the empire, including his prized jewel. Everything that I have done has only been made possible because of Pergamon Press. Maxwell purchased Pergamon Press in 1951. In 1991, 40 years later, he had no choice but to sell it. His spending sprees throughout his career, especially his big venture into the States, had backfired. Maxwell sold the family silver, Pergamon Press, for 440 million pounds. And now his decisions were going to mess with one of his oldest and most needed relationships. He was a difficult customer, but he was always pleasant to people who he could use, i.e. who he wanted to borrow money from. That's David Leal Bennett. He worked for National Westminster Bank, Maxwell's primary bank, the bank that loaned Maxwell the money for Pergamon in the 50s. The bank and Maxwell had a long and friendly relationship. Maxwell gave Leal Bennett tickets to soccer games for him and his kids. And throughout their partnership, whenever Maxwell owed a payment on a loan, he paid back on time. He rang close to the wire, I think, on things, but he used to say he had never let the bank down. With that in mind, the Maxwells came to Leal Bennett with an unusual request. In the spring of 1991, Maxwell was forced to sell Pergamon. But while it was getting all sorted out, Maxwell needed cash. He had debts he needed to pay off, and he didn't have the money. Don't get the wrong idea. Maxwell himself continued to act like a cartoon rich person. He continued to fly around the world, schmoozing with the elite and giving orders like this to his butler. RM would say, never end in champagne, Douglas. And I want smoked salmon. I want caviar. But while he was living the high life, he sent his son to talk to David Leal Bennett about getting some cash. Kevin Maxwell was the eighth child. So to put this in succession terms, you can think of him as the Kendall Roy of the family. 
At the time, he was in his early 30s, and he had his father's pointed features, but a skinny frame. Robert would say the only children who'd receive anything when he died would be Ghislaine and Kevin. He said that Kevin was the most like him, and he was clearly poised to be Robert's successor. What that meant in the meantime was that while Maxwell had dinners with world leaders, Kevin would ask the banks for the money to pay off their debts. He wanted a very short-term loan, and I think it was about, might have been 35 million. At this point, Leo Bennett actually went back into the files that he's kept for decades for this interview. It was actually 45 million. Anyway, Kevin went to Leo Bennett and asked that they loan the Maxwells a quick 45 million, you know, to hold them over. Think of it like if the rent was due on the 30th, but you get paid on the 1st, you're in a temporary bind. So you ask your friend to spot you for a couple of days, except it was for millions of dollars. I mean, 45 million, even today, is quite a lot of money. (laughs) A short and substantial loan like this was not common. Leal Bennett and his coworker left Kevin's office saying they need to chat about it. So they went to their boss and hashed it out. He just chewed it over and said, you know, what do you think, Dave? What do you think, Bob? I said, well, you know, we're going to get the money. He's always hasn't let us down previously. And in the end, they decided to go for it. But it wasn't an easy decision, and it wasn't easy to pull off. And I remember very clearly, you know, staying till about, I think, 11 o'clock at night, uh, getting that application to try to rush it through because it was so urgent. Lil Bennett made it happen. He was the one who pushed for it, and they got Maxwell the $45 million. Then, a couple of days passed. And then the proverbial first of the month came. And nothing. Maxwell was late. What's going on? Where is it? We want it. What's happening? He knows that if he hasn't produced something he's promised, it's pretty serious. Let's be clear, we are his main banker. It's not acceptable. He's calling Kevin, and he's getting excuses and stalls. So one day passed. Then another. Leal Bennett is feeling pressure. He's stressed when he gets home. Another day passes, and then another. All these years later, Leal Bennett can't exactly remember how long it took, but he thinks it was about a week, a week of waiting. And finally? And eventually, I think the sale proceeds of Pergamon came in and that covered it and paid for it. For decades, Maxwell had paid on time. Now, he was selling off a longtime moneymaker and running late to pay his bank back. But everything was kept very tight. He knew that he had to sort of not slip up again. Maxwell was in the banking doghouse. His accounts were being watched closely. So what does Maxwell do? He keeps schmoozing. He keeps the champagne flowing. It's what he's always done. Here's Greenslade. There have been lots of moments of stress, but it appeared that he always survived them by a series of diversions. Maxwell survived on publicity on appearing to be rich. Look, I'm not in any trouble. I've just bought a football club. In his own mind, his way to relieve stress was to do another deal. Maxwell had this view of himself, too big to fail. In his own mind, and let's face it, in reality, he got away with it so often, he just thought, what I need here to overcome this crisis is another plus, another thing to add to the idea that Robert Maxwell is one big man. While Kevin was busy trying to figure out how to pay off their loans, Maxwell was searching for an opportunity. And then he finds something. The next deal would rocket Maxwell's stature in the States in a way that he had always hoped for. 
But was it a solution or just a last ditch effort to live out his fantasy? By most accounts, if Maxwell hadn't purchased Macmillan, if he hadn't tried to compete with Murdoch, he would have been on solid ground. But Macmillan had gotten him so much attention. It made him seem bigger than he was. So in the spring of 91, while his son Kevin was scrambling to find money, Maxwell doubled down. The first time his career plummeted, he climbed back up by buying a paper. He hoped to buy his way out of his problems again. He set out to raise his status. He set out to buy a daily New York paper. I bought the New York Post, foolishly. And then I was chairman of the MTA for uh, eight years, maybe more foolishly. That's my career. This is Peter Calico. Maxwell spent his whole life trying to be part of Britain's upper class. Peter is proudly old New York. Calico is now 77, but if you Google him, he always looks like he's ready to box despite the fact that he's usually wearing a very expensive suit and boasts of one of the largest collections of vintage Ferraris. I had a little financial problem then, more than little. It's 1991, and Calico was looking to sell the Post. And Maxwell, of course, seemed very eager to own a daily paper in New York City. And the more you know him, the more you dislike him. Um, He's a little bit blustery. I don't like speaking ill of the dead, but in his case, I'll make an exception. First, he calls up, and he's very polite. He's almost embarrassingly polite. Normally, the buyer goes to the seller's office, but he made up some story about his something, so he couldn't come. Could I come at him at the Helmsley Plaza Hotel? I said, I'd be glad to. There was two guys that were in his hotel suite, and he would ask them for coffee and tea and the... Peter, do you want anything? And I thought those were like his butlers. They were his sons. And I can't believe he was treating his sons like that. And he would start yelling at him in front of me. It was a very unpleasant place to be. But Calico is about to be even more surprised. And he negotiates in a style that I've never seen before. If you want to buy something for $7, you offer five, right? He offers 10. And I think he does that because he wants to get the other bidders out of the room. And then he'd kill time by chatting about things that had nothing to do with the deal. Yeah, well, he told me that he was much smarter than Rupert Murdoch and much richer. I'm, I'm saying, what do I care about that? Why, why would that be of any interest to me? Maybe it was because Maxwell couldn't come up with the money. The talks dragged on for weeks. But Calico kept taking his calls. I treated A as entertainment and B, as a respite from my work days, which were filled with grief and, uh, and problems. So I had like a time to relax. You might think that Maxwell was delusional thinking he could buy a newspaper in New York City while almost defaulting on his loans. But what's even wilder is that while all this time he was stringing Calico along, Maxwell managed to put a deal together with a rival paper. The new owner of the Daily News, Bob Maxwell. Bob! The Daily News was one of the most influential tabloids in town. While it was a New York paper, it would get national attention. Maxwell now owned a New York institution. He was a daily voice in the media capital of the world. If Macmillan opened doors, then the paper catapulted him to the top of New York society. The day you own a paper, a daily paper, you're a power broker. 
And in fact, because New York is the country, your voice reaches to Washington. He was on an equal par now with Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch had the Post. He had the Daily News, which he regarded probably rightly as a more famous newspaper and uh, slightly more upmarket. It was everything Maxwell wanted. This earned him even more attention than acquiring Macmillan. In a sense, he had finally made it. The headlines read, Maxwell, titan of industry. But in reality, he had boarded a sinking ship. And Calico knew it. At that time, the news was in such dire straits. They were really hemorrhaging cash. Five guys looked at him. Nobody would even buy them. Calico, of all people, understood the mess that Maxwell was taking on. It cost more to run the paper than he could possibly make. The news had the same problem, but much worse. News could not be a hit as long as we were alive. We could not be a hit as long as they were alive. Both papers could not survive. They were all eating the same cow. Maxwell may have thought that buying the Daily News would line up clients and investors, and the banks would hand him cash. It was splashy, and on some level, it bolstered his image. But no big deal or loan came from it. Maybe people were seeing past the facade. Everyone we spoke to saw it as a terrible investment. He got the publicity he wanted himself. I think it was posturing by him. I think it was a little bit of uh, bravado on that, on that side. So to recap, by the spring of 91, Maxwell had sold Pergamon, paid too much for Macmillan, bought a failing newspaper, and was struggling to pay back loans. Months went by, and by the summer, he still hadn't found a solution. Debts were piling up, with deadlines looming for payback. With no better options, in July, just two months after Maxwell was late paying back the first emergency loan, Kevin went back to Westminster Bank, asking for another 45 million pounds, with a promise to, of course, pay it back right away this time. I think Robert had assumed that we would have given the 45 million. But the bank wasn't about to be burned again. Declined. End of story. The Maxwells were furious. Kevin said something like, fine, be that way. And then Kevin instructs National Westminster to schedule a payment to pay off some other loans that the Maxwells owe. And right before the bank was going to pay out, it appeared that Maxwell didn't have enough money. But then... We suddenly had money coming in from one, two, three, four, five, six banks and money going out to another six banks. Money coming in just in time to pay off more pressing loans. What was happening? I figured out fairly quickly uh, that they were payments, they were foreign exchange transactions. What does that mean? Stay with me, because what Maxwell was doing was crazy. In very simple terms, in the early 90s, when you converted cash from one currency to another, there was a delay in the money being deducted from your account. Say I was converting 100 US dollars to pounds. Because of the delay in reporting the transaction, for a day or so, my bank accounts would say I had 100 US dollars and the equivalent amount in pounds. Essentially, Maxwell was using this temporary glitch to make up money and then trying to spend it. All these years later, Leo Bennett remembers talking about it with his coworker. And uh, he said, how are things going, David? I said, it's a nightmare. Look what's happening. They're actually creating money. And he said, you're right, it does look like that. He said, do not make payments that you don't have to. Again, this was a huge client. 
Leo Bennett wanted to maintain the relationship. He couldn't come out and say, you are cheating, but he also couldn't let them spend money they didn't have. So Leo Bennett picked up the phone, called Kevin, and basically said, Kevin, you're short. You don't have enough money to pay off everything. Think about what this must have been like for both of them. Kevin knows they've been caught. Kevin then has to tell Robert, a man not known for taking bad news well, that they can't make the payments they desperately need to make. And from Leo Bennett's perspective, it's clear one of his main clients is in serious trouble and can't be trusted. It's not quite another day in the office, is it? Maxwell hosted all the right people on his yacht. He made splashy purchases that placed him in the same sentence as Murdoch. He played rich. He thought banks would keep giving him money so long as he kept up appearances. If he was late to pay or needed a quick loan, banks would think, sure, he's good for it. He has a private jet. He gives us champagne. It'll be fine. But at this point, even Maxwell couldn't keep up the charade. Throughout 1991, there was a lot of robbing Peter to pay Paul. All the time, he was moving money around, circulating money in the vain hope that it would never stop. It was smoke and mirrors. But he never was able to pay down debts of any kind. Maxwell bet it all to be a major player. And now the whole empire was in jeopardy. And somehow, it was even worse than it appears. He had taken money from his employees' future, robbed their future. That's next week on Power, the Maxwells. Who pays for Robert's fantasy? Power, the Maxwells is written and presented by me, Tara Palmieri. Producers are Paul Smith and Grant Irving. Story editor is Dasha Lisitsina. Our executive producer is Tom Koenig. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Engineering and scoring by Spoke Media and NPAL Audio. Our visual designers are Emma Lansdowne and Alex Elder. Special thanks to Ella McLeod, Joe Sykes, Russell Finch, Peggy Sutton, Steve Ackerman, and Mark Rivers. 